My role as a finance person in early stage startup is not to create a function that's perfect. My role is to create a function that's barely passable so, so that all the resources that we can, we can actually put towards roles that get money in or get the features out. That is like, this is the reality of startups. And this is a role that you constantly need to, to, to have in your head. Hey everyone, and welcome back to episode six of the Good Money Podcast, a show brought to you by Cape. We're a spend management platform helping businesses cut wasteful spending and get control of their cash flow. We bring our listeners up close and personal with world-class financial leaders from some of the most exciting startups and scale-ups who are changing the way we all live, learn, shop, work, eat, and rest. If you join us for the first time, I'm the host of the show. My name's Ryan Edwards Pritchard, and with me today, I'm incredibly fortunate to say, is Alexi Michko, co-founder and CFO of one of the most successful healthcare technology startups in the APAT region in Eucalyptus. We're going to be discussing his experience running the finance function for a number of Australia's most well-known and loved unicorns. Thanks again for joining us, Alexi. How are you doing today? Pretty well. Pleasure to be here. Hey, pleasure to be here. I was going to say, we were just talking about your interesting name, your surname. I've possibly butchered it, so I'm sorry. Um, but uh, for those that aren't aware, where, whereabouts are you from? Uh, I, I'm sure as your listeners will be able to tell by the accent, definitely not from Australia. Stop it. <laughs> I definitely spent the, the last 15 years here, but uh, originally I'm from Russia, but I left when I was about 13 years old and I went to Switzerland and from there to United States. Wow. Okay. So you were plucked away from Mother Russia, literally from your teenage years and then over to Europe and then eventually kind of over to here. I mean, I'm personally, I'm fascinated by Russia just in terms of more the kind of political side, the history, the culture, it's so rich uh, and it's incredibly relevant, obviously, in terms of the power base that's there, Putin, everything that's kind of going on. Uh, I'm assuming you still got family over that way? Uh, yeah, that's right. So all my family is still back in Moscow. Right. And you managed, I mean, just with the pandemic and everything kind of going on over the last Two years have you, you managed to make it back and forth kind of well i'm assuming not it must have been a couple of years then since you've been back uh yeah unfortunately not it's been probably two and a half years in fact i had a kid uh and the kid is uh two years old now and my parents haven't seen uh seen seen the child in in person which is uh very unfortunate but uh the borders are opening up so um i'm really looking forward to that time nice man well what are you thinking something for the new year or even maybe christmas period Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm thinking about Easter, probably. Nice, man. Well, on a positive, Moscow will be starting to thaw from the, uh, what is it, minus 10 degree winter at least. We don't quite get the same extremities of the seasons in Sydney uh, in terms of uh, the winters, thank God. Um, but just as some background, uh, we got introed a while back by uh, Nathan, Nathan Chadwick, um, who we had on the show for episode three, I think it was. Um, Nathan's the CFO over at Airtasker. Uh, he mentioned you had a super interesting story in how you landed up in the startup space. Um, where did it all start for you? 
So like my dad is also an uh, entrepreneur. So he started his uh, car dealership business in, in Russia. And then uh, he wanted for the kids to have international education. So he just sent me to Switzerland. That was the thing to do back then. And from there, uh, United States was, I kind of selected it as a place to get my bachelor degree. Uh, and all the only thing I knew is that I was an international student and uh, it sounded like an international business degree was right right there in terms of what I wanted to do. So I went over to the United States and to uh, George Washington University in Washington, D.C. It was an interesting experience. I got to see Obama inauguration, all that kind of stuff. And then when I graduated, I actually graduated at the height of the financial crisis. So it was like 2009. and. Uh, I guess for obvious reasons, no, nobody was hiring, especially a young, fresh graduate with a, with a temporary working rights. But start, startups were, right? Because you, they, they, they don't pay you in money, they pay you in equity. Uh, that's, Sweat equity, absolutely. That's right. That didn't really amount to anything. But one thing I learned through that experience is that actually, if you go into a startup, you get to punch way above your experience level. So for my particular case, I joined the startup employee number two, and I got to kind of manage other interns on my second week on the job, right? Fresh out of uni, know nothing about basically anything. A lot of red warning signs that startup is probably not the one to be joining, but like I'm oblivious to all these things. But it was a great experience, right? Because you got to kind of make mistakes on somebody else's payroll which was great, even though they didn't pay me in, in cash. It was still equity. But that was uh, a great experience. But then I realized that um, one of the core skill sets uh, that uh, kind of is super relevant in business is accounting and finance. So I've decided to do my um, accounting degree. I had a good fortune of um, kind of getting into Sydney Uni and actually doing two exchanges in UK and back in St. Petersburg and Russia, which was great as an international student. Um, and then I came into Australia, finished my um, master's degree in accounting. And the only two things I knew was a little bit of startup experience and a little bit of uh, accounting, but nothing practical, right? So um, it's actually funny that you mentioned Nathan because he is a he uh, kind of we crossed path in, in some way very early on in my career because there were only two co-working spaces in Australia at the time, Fishburners and Tankstream Labs. And I actually started my uh, startup career in Tankstream Labs. So I just came, like, showed up there one day uh, and kind of asked around if anyone needed uh, a startup and uh, accounting experience. And there was a, a couple of uh, startups that did. And then eventually I landed at a firm called Interactive Accounting that was a startup firm, a startup account accounting firm uh, that was servicing other startups, which was right in my alley, right? Accounting startups, great. And then uh, they had a lot of clients in the space, obviously within the Tankstream Labs building, but also around. It's a pretty rich space to be in. I think for anybody who doesn't know, I mean, in terms of uh, co-working spaces in Sydney and arguably Australia, that. Tankstream Labs um, and Fishburners, it's kind of one of the hotspots, I guess, where you've got hundreds of startups and founders coming together. It's a real melting pot. So it's a fantastic base if, if your focus is, is trying to get into that ecosystem. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there is a lot more co-working spaces now, but back then, those were kind of the primary ones for sure. 
And uh, as I was going through that experience, I got to work on a lot of clients um, as an external accountant and help them uh, kind of set up their basic accounting processes, right? So anything from like just an accounting record to how to do digital receipts. It was the era when Zero was just getting up. taking hold. Yeah, getting up. So it was pretty cool. Like uh, cloud accounting was a new thing. Uh, <laughs> we were hip and cool accountants, uh, which was cool. Uh, but then I, I realized that I really wanted to have experience on the client side and actually take ownership of the finance process in its entirety because as an external accountant you are paid to do a very specific thing and even if you see that the process is breaking somewhere else you actually can't fix it because you 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 have a, a job and you have time clock and time sheets so you can't spend too much time on the particular thing so what i've decided to do is find a, a startup that wasn't our client uh, and that was kind of promising and uh, uh, cool so I uh, looked around and I found a startup in Surrey Hills um, called Canva, and I was employee 28 there. And that was kind of an accelerant to my career because... Jeez, man, 28 people. When was, when was this? I mean, there must be like a... feels like there's a bazillion people over there now, but like... It was 2014, I want to say, something like that. Yeah, it's a while, a while back. But uh, it was great because like... Once again, in startups, uh, you get to punch above your experience level. So when I came in, I was one of the two accountants there. And effectively, like the, the world is yours, right? There are plenty of problems for you to tackle. There is nobody there uh, in terms of your vertical that says, oh, you can't do this. This is too complicated. You just pick up and, and do. So like one of the things that I kind of cut my teeth on is setting up the Philippines office in terms of like the corporate structure and the accounting side of it. But also something that stayed with me throughout my whole career is setting up employee equity plans, which is one of the core skills if you're in this space. And then after a few years there, uh, the first, obviously Canva was going parabolic. Uh, and uh, I had an inkling <laughs> that I wanted to test whether it's actually my skills uh, that uh, kind of were like, whether my skills were valuable or whether the Canva was just such a rocket ship that it didn't really matter. So I decided to leave Canva and join another startup um, uh, that was also about 20 people at the time. Uh, and that startup was Koala, which is for people in Australia, it's very familiar for those listeners who are overseas. It's uh, kind of a, a modeled a little bit after Casper, but uh, takes a little bit more of a digital IKEA kind of route. And that experience was great as well, because I was coming from SaaS, right, and uh, kind of that accounting environment, and uh, now I'm taking a, a more proactive roles with all the kind of experience that I brought in uh, digital marketing and physical goods space, which is very, very different. So that, 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 that this dual, dual experience is something that kind of stays with me at Eucalyptus now. Yeah. Question before we go into the koala piece, because I'm, I'm, I'm keen to get into koala because like they are such a recognizable brand over here, an incredible brand, as is Canva uh, globally. But as always, kind of keen to really kind of learn as much as possible in terms of the playbook and ESOPs. Uh, you mentioned like that was kind of, that was one of the things that you were quite hot on. Um, and when you went into Canva, I was just curious, it, we're just picking up on that part because there is so much talk and debate with founders and finance teams in terms of 
how do you get the um, compensation structure right for when you're an early stage startup and how do you build something that scale? What's the right balance between equity and salary? And I mean, we joked about it just a second ago, like, you know, where you're a fresh grad. I mean, frankly, this is just being in any startup, but when you're a fresh grad, you know, and it is sweat equity, you know, and there isn't as much in terms of the salary there and you need to probably get a second or third job or whatever else it might be. When you went into Canva at that particular point in time, you know, was it literally a blank sheet of paper uh, that you had that, and, and just a free license to start actually looking at implementing uh, a ESOP for the first time? And how did you go about that? What was your thinking around it? Yeah, so in Canva specifically, uh, they already had an ESOP plan in place when I landed there, and I participated in it, fortunately. I guess my input at that stage it was around the time that Australia was changing the rules around ESOPs and introducing startup concessions. And Canva was also hiring globally. So my role there was to get a hold of the new rules, design a plan that applies to Australians, but also applies for U- US and our Filipino office. So that was like my role was quite technical. In terms of like staging and uh, understanding how much equity at any particular point needs to be given, that's that thinking has uh, evolved quite a bit more in eucalyptus. So that's what we, we do here. And I've written a guide on, on the subject. I'm happy to kind of send it to you and we can maybe append it somewhere in the, in the podcast link as well. I would love that. Is it a what, medium post, blog post? It's a, it's a PDF document that everybody circulates. It has my phone number there too. Cool. Well, yeah, if we could get our hands on that, that would be fantastic. I don't think there's enough resources out there to help you with tackling some of the trickiest subjects in terms of compensation planning and just well building the plan in the first place when you're a startup. My mentor to the team is very much in line with Newton's philosophy or mindset, I should say, you know, standing on the shoulder of giants. As we might feel that every new circumstance or challenge is super unique to us the truth is it's always such a well-trodden path there's all of these other amazing startups and founding teams that have come before us that we have an opportunity to learn from what worked for them what didn't work for them and i guess from you know your viewpoint alexi when those shoulders are those of canva and koala those massive shoulders uh, it just gives you such a strong base to make shortcuts to the magic formula that you know actually works. Otherwise, for the rest of us, it's trial and error, right? Uh, as you go about implementing these different frameworks, blueprints of remuneration plans and talent strategies into your startup, you'll find you got to toggle certain things up, such as the base salary, yeah, and then certain things down, such as equities. You, you go trapezing through that growth journey of being a startup, a scale-up, or a stay-aheader. Yeah, um, for sure. Like on the first point, I definitely think that like startups are about learning, right? So there is, uh, it it will never feel easy going through that process and you will make mistakes, but that's all right, right? As long as you have um, kind of people you can tap on the shoulder to make sure that you don't make any critical ones. Like in, in, in ESOP context, that would be any kind of tax implications that are on you or the employees. Yeah, well, Thankfully, we just saw a huge overhaul of the employee share options plan, uh, aka uh, ESOPs, 
from the government last week. That will mean as a startup and employer, if you're offering shares to staff, they won't be slapped with a large tax bill when they leave. Uh, interestingly, the focus on this was to encourage individuals and startups to actually uh, fly the nest, to leave uh, and build their own startups. Uh, and it's going to cost the government a, a pretty penny. Um, they predicted these changes to share ownership schemes will cost taxpayers around about $500 million in the budget. Uh, but the, the government's justification around this is that it's all part of a, a bigger, more systemic issue that they're trying to fix around um, talent attraction and retention for startups and scale-ups, um, trying to create some, I guess, some positive churn within the industry. Uh, from a, a CFO and founder perspective, there's no doubt that the, that the best startup employees think and act like owners. And frankly, the best way to encourage them to do so is to make them owners. So as you mentioned, Alexi, you know, ESOPs, essential uh, for any cash-strapped startup that's out there, especially given the struggle to compete with the salaries available at larger scale-ups and stair-headers, let alone incumbents in whatever industry you're tackling. Um, I guess, what does it then mean uh, in terms of how do you use ESOPs, and I'm sure you'll have loads uh, to, to contribute on this kind of point. I, I think kind of from what I've seen in terms of bringing share option plans in successfully, uh, education for your team is is the key thing to ensure the scheme is beneficial to everyone. Um, you know, it's articulating what the stock options are all about, especially in Australia where the equity culture isn't quite as mainstream perhaps as it is in the US or over in Europe just yet, uh, mainly because we've we've not had the same volume of success stories yet. Um, the reason to flag that, though, to listeners is that if you're offering out ESOPs as an incentive um, to uh, potential employees uh, or even existing, then the problem exists if it's undervalued as a genuine reward for them uh, if they don't understand it. So hence the need to invest in education within your team, uh, talking about the equity value at your weekly all-hand meetings or at your salary reviews, that's when it really becomes a powerful retention tool. Then it's all about making the knowledge of its mechanics simple as to whether you're using some kind of grading or benchmarking matrix, ensuring this is something that's then reviewed and reset as you go through each of the different fundraising rounds and then ensuring it's accessible in company-wide documents for everyone. Anyway, not to digress, uh, but some really positive changes coming through for the startup ecosystem last week. I mean, yeah, the guide that I say is 10 to 20. But in reality, like it's all to the particular circumstances of the company, right? So if you have two founders and you haven't had a lot of dilution, then sure, 20% sounds reasonable. If you have a particular uh, view on how the equity should be shared, and some founders do, right? Uh, then maybe 20% is reasonable. If you have a very difficult board that uh, comes from some kind of a background that's very against ESOP plans in general, then maybe 10 is all you can get away with. So like there is no kind of one single thing that fits all the companies, but uh, that's, that's probably the range. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, the whole premise in terms of the ESOP plan, yeah, Ideally, you top back up at the beginning of every single round. And the whole idea is that replenishing the stocks, getting ready for that next 12 to 18 month journey, making sure that you've got enough there to incentivize 
not just the senior leadership team, but also uh, to attract the next wave of talent, right? I mean, you've got to deal with the fact that there might be some retention issues as you go through those different kind of funding rounds. I mean, it's natural, you know, only that you'll get some kind of churn, hopefully not too bad, but you'll also be wanting to grow the team, grow the business, you know, and attract new talent. And that's what the ESOP pool is fantastic for when you haven't got access to ordinary shares. Yeah, for sure. The only thing I would add there that ESOP pool is a tool, right? Uh, it's not the only tool in your in your set because like attracting talent, it's can be a lot about the story. It can also be a lot about working with motivated and talented people that you have in your team now and kind of showcasing that could be just as good of a magnet to attracting talent that an ESOP pool would. Uh, retention is a lot about how people enjoy what kind of work they do here do they enjoy it here so like it's a it's a combination package that you have to look into and ESOP is kind of like a baseline that you have to have uh, but it doesn't I, I think it's very difficult for you to kind of be above everybody else in the ESOP land because it's it's a limited limited uh, range of things that you can be doing here that's such great insight. If you can reward the founding team who's going to be on the journey with you for the next five to 10 years, then it's a no-brainer. The first question you should start with then is who should have a piece of the pie, right? Some founders will, uh, and CFOs should say, will only give options to the, uh, to the founding team. And then others will give them to the whole company as you scale. Then the second question is how big of an options pool-shaped pie does this need to be? exactly how much equity do you want to set aside for the team? Now, the range is anything, as we said, from, say, 10%. Uh, but then for others on the more generous side, as you said, it, you know, it could be up to 20%. Every, every one scenario is going to be different. You know, it's good to understand what the benchmark of your peers is, though. You know, what are VCs um, on your cap table saying? What do you mentors and advisors, NEDs or chair think to it? You know, they'll all have opinions, but ultimately it's, uh, you know, it, it's the CFO, it's the founding team, you know, alongside the board that uh, must determine the scheme itself. What's important to remember is you've got to budget and spend equity like you would cash that, you know, like cash. It'll change with your growth. At every new round of fundraising, your options pool will refresh you know, as you set up a new cap table, and there will also be new people to bring in. So budget your options, Paul, as part of the financial planning. You know, for example, when mapping out new jobs, budget in their salaries and stock options at Cape. We've got different bandits of salary and stock, stock options for, for each of the different roles that we've got planned, for example. Yeah, for sure. The only thing I would add there that ESOP pool is a tool, right? Uh, it's not the only tool in your in your set. Because like, Attracting talent, it can be a lot about the story. It can also be a lot about working with motivated and talented people that you have in your team now and kind of showcasing that could be just as good of a magnet to attracting talent that an ESOP pool would. Uh, retention is a lot about how people enjoy what kind of work they do here. Do they enjoy it here? So like it's a, it's a combination package that you have to look into. And ESOP is kind of like a baseline that you have to have uh, but it doesn't, I, I think it's very difficult for you to kind of be above everybody else in the ESOP land because it's, it's a limited, limited uh, range of things that you can be doing here.
Yeah, I love that kind of viewpoint that there's a number of different tools uh, you've got at your disposal. Equity is only part of the total compensation. So at the very early stages of a company, you know, the CFO uh, and the team will rely on other things to bring uh, to life the idea. You know, it's only fair and right to give equity to those who are taking early risk as their work will have a direct impact on the value of the actual company itself. You know, equity lets them gain in the upside. It can genuinely change your life, right? Uh, and we've seen that happen um, time and again, especially, you I mean, clearly, talking about Canva and Atlassian and these kind of companies. Uh, but as you mature and grow, you know, the resources you've got at your disposal changed as well. You know, your offering as an employer means you can over-index on the basic salaries, on, on, on bonuses or other benefits, and your ability to attract and retain talent becomes easier and easier as you scale. You know, once you have that momentum and machine set up, it's almost impossible to stop. Yeah, I think uh, there is a wonderful post on Medium that Mel done about kind of how they uh, Mel and Cliff started Canva. So it's a really really good read if you if you have the time. Uh, it's quite long, but it's very very interesting. But uh, what I would say it's uh, it felt for me almost like uh, uh, an avalanche, right? Because it starts with a single snowflake and then it kind of snowballs into bigger 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 things. And by the end of it, it's uh, an unstoppable machine that kind of rolls through. And that's probably what we're seeing now globally that Canva is doing. But back then, what I think Mel and Cliff did really well is that they had a success in terms of the first round of investment or a connection that they leveraged into a next success. And that that next success in terms of getting the kind of a technical talent gave them legitimacy to do the next thing and attract more talent in. And at the point that when I was there, like majority of our engineers were coming from Atlassian, right? So that that definitely uh, a, a thing where one generation kind of feeds into the next one. And a lot of our engineers are from Atlassian here at Eucalyptus. So it's it's a I think it's a great flywheel that's definitely starting to to happen here. Man, that's the way to do it in those early days. You've got to tap into that flywheel and also leverage your own networks to find people through people, you know, because they will vouch for you. They'll convince, uh, you know, other engineers they know to help you uh, about to get you up off the ground. Uh, and equally, do you risk the chance of a poor cultural technical fit via recommendations? You know, in those early days, every person you bring in is hugely influential to your success. When you're in your first 10 people, every one person equals 10% output of the company itself. When you start thinking about it that way, you know, it does change your perception in terms of the quality threshold that you then hold up. But looking at this more broadly, um, yeah, and again, you know, we've been talking a lot about the industry and the ecosystem just before in terms of the changes coming through, what the government's proposing on ESOPs. There's a real race happening right now for international talent in the technology sector as a whole uh, and, and attracting new talent into uh, the ecosystem. Um, so, I mean, as, a, as, an, I guess as an ecosystem, let alone a wee scrappy startup, you know, what's important uh, as a whole is that we... We've got to retain you know, and reverse any chance of brain drain you know, happening with all those talented individuals that have gone through the ranks of, say, the Atlassians and the Canvas um, 
that they don't flock the nest to North America or Europe. And we need to spawn the, the next generation of entrepreneurs and operators uh, that join the likes of Eucalyptus, Cape and others or build the same. Um, and then equally, they go on and spawn a new wave of investors to support the early stage startup ecosystem. Anyway, out of interest, just on the, the whole talent sphere front, did you even need to explore offshore options as you um, scaled? Uh, or did you find that your ability to attract talent here was so strong, it was never an, actually an issue? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, like, not on the same scale, obviously. But what I found out is that in terms of my personal skill set, things that I took three, four weeks to figure out at Canva, in Koala, I could just pick up the phone and, and call the right person and get it sorted in a day. So there were a massive um, amount of shortcuts that I could uh, do because I've either faced that problem before or I know people who have done that and I can call upon the, that resource. So that was super helpful because that means I could concentrate on a lot of things that I haven't done before, especially around um, physical goods and how you manufacture mattresses uh, and how kind of the digital marketing space works. And I actually met my co-founders uh, there as well, uh, Tim and, and Charlie. So Tim was heading the marketing team and Charlie was the head of creative. And together we kind of jumped ship and, and started Eucalyptus. But like that, that time was um, very, very beneficial in terms of tr testing our experiences of things that we thought we knew and now just refining them. Yeah, well, I think you said it at the beginning of the conversation, right, where, and I guess this is the same for anybody, you know, learning on somebody else's book, right? I think you talked about it when, not in the literal sense, because it was sweat equity, but that first role, that first gig you did, gave you the opportunity to kind of get your foot in the door and just start getting some experience. Uh, start getting some runs on the board. And I think, I mean, I look at career in a very similar way. You know, the most valuable thing by far is always trying to learn and take that on to the next thing. I just, out of interest to drill into that point though, what was it in particular that you found going into Koala um, that you were able to just close the gap on in terms of the, the time, the tips, the tricks, that, that kind of side? I'm just curious. It, was it more the actual, um, the day-to-day, because -day, there's two sides just looking into your role. There's the, the kind of day-to-day -day running the business, which is more your kind of finance, your payroll, your accounting. Then there's the, the other side, which is the, the change in the business, which is dealing with the, the business model challenges, um, dealing with the more kind of strategic pieces. So going in there straight away, what, what was it you were able to implement and um, kind of benefit from that previous experience? Yeah, sure. On both sides. So like on the day to day, it was um, super easy for me to go in and say, hey, actually, because I've done um, HR system implementation in uh, Canva. Actually, we need the same to be done in Koala, right? And I know exactly what buttons to press to make it happen. That's super helpful, right? Because it takes away the time, the wasted time that you do on all of those things and allows you to have the headspace to think about more strategic things. In Koala, for example, in the time that I was there, we launched uh, the Japanese office for Koala. I've never been to Japan, let alone launched an office there, but I've been to Philippines like 10 times in my time with, with Canva. 
And all of a sudden, because you have this comparison, you actually know what things to look for, right? Okay, I need lawyers, I need accountants, I need to form banking relationships, I need to do this X, Y. And even on a deeper level, you also start understanding what the archetype of the team needs to be, whether it's finance team or whether it's an HR team. And you kind of refine your mental model as to what sequence do I hire in? Like what experience levels do I need? What kind of personalities work for these particular roles? How do I actually figure out if people are good or not, right? So all these things, you've kind of done it once, you've learned from your mistakes, and you're doing it again, hopefully better this time. Uh, and then uh, it kind of the cycle continues. Yeah, it sounds like muscle memory, right? But on the, the good or the bad point when it comes to hiring and building up the team, you know, things can go so badly wrong if you get bad cultural fit or someone who isn't hands-on enough for where you're at being a super early stage startup, um, but still springs a wheel to make it difficult to move them on. You know, time is wasted, uh, progress is, is lost, um, you know, and even worse, some of the best people in your team will quit. Or be close to quitting if you've got someone who's not working out. You know, the the advice I was given by mentors uh, was focus on hiring people that will make them a good fit for where you're at over the next 12 to 18 months. Anything shorter than that, and they might not be able to scale with you. you know, anything longer than that, then you've overhired with someone that's a bad fit for the job. Uh, and then... I guess just kind of focusing on the founding team, you know, you, you want to try and ensure that you've got in the in that kind of group um, functional area expertise. Um, you know, you want to make sure that there's an ability to manage uh, a team in that particular functional area. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, ideally you've got strategic thinkers in the mix as well. You know, the, the perfect kind of melting pot of it all. Yeah, for sure. Like there are a couple of points there. One is that it really helps to have co-founders who are specialists in their respective fields, right? So like I couldn't imagine doing this without Tim, Benny, Charlie, because they actually know how their respective teams need to look like uh, over over periods that uh, that we're talking about. Like I have a very strong understanding of how a finance team needs to look like. I had some inkling about how HR teams needs to to get built out. I also, a uh, uh, second point there is that my role as a finance person in early stage startup is not to create a function that's perfect. My role is to create a function that's barely passable so, so that all the resources that we can, we can actually put towards roles that get money in or get the features out. That is like, this is the reality of startups. And this is a role that you constantly need to to, to have in your head. As an example, I was running payroll until two months ago, and we are uh, almost 200 people, 200 people company now. Wow. Which, which like, what should the CFO spend one day uh, a week uh, on running payroll? Probably not, uh, but it's just the sequence in which we've decided to build out our finance team. And that's the point at which, like, we've raised our Series B. Now we have the the, the capability to to do that and from i mean just kind of looking at that then so 200 people how big's your finance team right now with eucalyptus so we have five people here uh, and i think we have two people soon to be three people in philippines right okay i guess more just the kind of automation perspective 
Yeah. It's interesting. One of the kind of hot topics, I guess, when it comes to accounts payable and that side of things everybody's talking about is more the robotic process automation side of things. Yeah. I think everybody's kind of keen to basically go out there and build some kind of bot, you know, and just kind of trying to find ways that you can take responsibility for automating processes. So is that something that, I mean, you mentioned payroll there as a kind of example, but, and just think about your kind of blueprint. Um, how do you look at that in terms of how you go about automating different things within the finance function to allow the business as a whole to flourish? I think there are two points there. First one is that you need to have the right tool for the right stage, right? If you have two invoices a week coming through, you don't need a bookkeeper. You don't need a fancy tool. You just need to your hands and you type it into the accounting software. That's just the reality of it. But as you progress, the biggest time saving is actually not on the technology side, but it's in the habit forming side, right? I've during my time in interactive accounting, I've seen far too many startups that don't have a regular accounts payable cycle, right? The founders just pay invoices when they get them. They don't log it through the accounting software. They just go to the bank and pay off the invoice. And then they forget about it. And then it comes in again as a reminder because the other person didn't reconcile it and they didn't pay it again. And then they spend time wasting figuring out why why uh, they've overpaid 20 grand and who is it for, right? So like all these things on the early stage, like it's just forming proper habits, right? Super important in terms of the timing and in terms of how the process works then over time as volume increases you introduce things to do the little bit more of heavy lifting of um like invoice typing or whatever that might be or coding in some form or fashion but then there are other things that uh start popping up like one of the biggest time kind of savers for us was digital cards uh so like i don't necessarily think automation is the uh, the golden bullet, I think it's habit forming and then uh, kind of cutting down on wasted wasted time of getting clarity. There are tools there that will allow you to just set up a process in such a way that you don't have to spend it at that time. Yeah, I think the, I think the, the utilization, so the, again, to look at both those points, the, the utilization of tools to reinforce the right type of behaviors, though, so that your finance team and finance function can have confidence uh, in, I mean, kind of using an example here, but providing uh, you know, your staff, your employees with access to company funds so that they can go about doing their job, whether it's virtual or physical cards. You know, ultimately, what you need to ensure is that the expense policy itself you know, is essentially baked into the card before it's distributed onto the team, you know, so that only approved spending can actually go through. Uh, so, you know, the, the rules and the kind of um, controls are, are basically baked in there, whether that's to say card usage can only happen between, I don't know, like Monday to Friday, nine to five. It can only happen at certain type of merchants or not certain merchants, right? You might decide that you don't want your team um, using it hospitality or for, for, for entertainment purposes, right? Yeah, for sure. I actually have a radically different opinion on this. <laughs> oh, go on then. I'm, I'm intrigued. And, and the reason why is that um, I think 
a lot of people uh, use a template of large corporations and then they apply it into the startup space. And this idea of a budget bugs me a lot. And the reason for that is that budget is a really cool process, but it's meant to kind of reduce unnecessary spending on a very, very large scale. In a startup environment, what it actually uh, does, it creates behaviors where if you're below the budget line, you're safe. If you're above the budget line, you're in trouble. So I will always be below and I will always spend it because if not, I'll lose it, right? This is the thinking, but it's like, it's very uh, damaging in the early stage because what you're trying to do is you're trying to make sure that you maximize effectiveness, right? So what we do at Eucalyptus is we say, actually, you don't have a budget, right? So there is no this safe line that you can hide behind. You can, you have access to company cards. It has whatever money uh, there is, you can always request more. And then you have to use your own personal judgment as to whether or not that expense is justified. And then Alexi is sitting on his uh, laptop and uh, has, a, has a, obviously a help in screening those reports and being able to come to you and talk to you about certain expenses. And that actually, what it creates is it creates a culture of thinking around expense and whether, whether this is the most effective way to spend it. And then the second piece around budget that I find quite damaging, especially in kind of a digital marketing environment, is like trying to work towards a budget uh, because like, especially in the digital marketing space, it's a creative process where you make mistakes, right? But if you try to enforce budget, it means you take less risk. And it means that over time, you just have less channels and less uh, messages and less creative assets. You're playing it safe all the time. And then you don't survive because there are other companies that, sure, what, like one month they totally bombed because the, that campaign that they ran didn't work. But then the next month they were able to discover a channel through trial and error that works exceptionally well, right? So the idea of rigid rules that the finance imposes on respective teams within the organization, I think it's old school way of doing it. And I think it still has place in larger organizations, but that can't be the default approach at the early stage. It's a really interesting kind of take on things because, um, and, and definitely a challenging take on how we think about things because um, I think the, the feedback and what we'd kind of seen to date was control and budgets is a really important theme, especially in this, especially in this day and age uh, and this kind of environment that we're in and have been in for the last two years. You know, people want to cut the cloth accordingly and tighten the belts a little bit and look for access where or tools that provide them with more transparency about what's going on, where every single cent is actually going, and more yeah, more control around making sure money's being spent responsibly. I absolutely agree on the transparency point, right? But what happens is if you try to dictate deficiency from the top down, you always incentivize safe kind of safe from the point of view of like commercial risk-taking behavior because like in an early stage regardless of kind of where you are at any particular point startups are effectively businesses that if they do things as they do them now they will fail right it's just this idea of reinventing and getting into a better position and that requires you to take commercial risks in things like digital marketing in things like product development, all those areas. And then if, if we try to have this environment where we have budgets, then 
what we actually focus on is how much people spend on like getting coffees or how much do we spend on office expenses. But like those costs are trivial, right? In the context of salaries, in the context of digital marketing expenses, in the context of the time that you're spending on on doing these things. So like I, I just agree completely with the transparency point. I just disagree with this idea that the clarity of a line is a good thing. Yeah. So I kind of trying to navigate this part because the thing that's challenging, I guess, is from my background and experience working really closely with various different teams, the way that I'd always looked at it was imagine a bucket and the way that I'd always kind of, although it's not a you know, hard and fast rule that has to be like this, it's, it's kind of a 70-20-10 type of mix uh, in terms of where do you actually uh, siphon off and, and bucket, in fact, compartmentalize the resources that you have and the, the resources, you know, really high level, two key ones, human capital, financial capital. Yeah, and that 70% really, I mean, to go back to the way that we kind of think about things with a plan is uh, OKRs, quarterly basis. Clearly, if you're pre-product market fit, three months, six months, however long your OKR cycle is, like frankly, you might not be around in three weeks' time. So like, you're not going to be going to the same lengths of having these quite rigid OKRs. But if you're post-product market fit, kind of going into C, Series A, Series B, you know, where I've seen that kind of blueprint and have firsthand experiences going, well, 70% of my resources, the time and effort, the, the, the financial capital that we've got is going to be focused in terms of what we believe the plan is here. And the plan is saying that the, this is what we're going to try to achieve. This is what we're going to try and ship. This is the number of customers we're going to try and bring through. This is what the funnel looks like. That's what conversion is going to be, yada, yada, yada. And this is what ultimately revenue we're going to be looking to actually achieve, right? The kind of 20 then is the kind of the, the close bets, the things where there are initiatives that you're working on that might be in part um, preparing you for the next set of OKRs. They might be a bit more strategic. And then the 10% really is the, is the outside bets. You know, it's the stuff that if you can imagine it on a roulette table that you need to place some chips down um, because you just don't know if they're going to come in. Now, sometimes that could be product work sometimes it could be more uh, strategic partnerships sometimes it could be literally building out or looking to build out internationally or through different teams or whatever else it might be but generally speaking those are the kind of things from a senior leadership team uh, or a cfo ceo you know that's kind of loosely how i kind of try to think about things and then try to make sure that there is enough both human capital financial capital First and foremost, for that 70%, so that we're meeting the objectives just to keep the lights, the hygiene factor, the, the, the lights, everything else going. You know, there is then that 20 and 10 mix, and sometimes it's just 30, right? Or sometimes it's 20 and that's it. It, it kind of varies, but you need to have working on the business and in the business. I mean, we, we said this about interactive accounting like earlier on, you know, and, and that kind of variation between those two different things, like it's incredibly important, but you need to have some parameters around that yeah for sure and the way we do that is we kind of go through each individual role and and define it is a essential one or is a growth focused but one thing i would add is like the beauty of venture capital is that you can actually do both right you can contribute enormous amount of resource into the build phase as well as keeping the lights on so that this is what 
happens after that fundraising round is closed, right? You have whatever, 18-month runway, right? You need to build out the growth team, the, the extra engineers, the extra product managers, the extra staff to support that as early as you can, right? Because their input into the growth trajectory will be felt six, 12 months later, right? The pieces that are kind of keep the current operations going, you kind of grow them linearly in a way. Yeah. You know what? It's, 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 it's actually really fascinating just talking to you about this in terms of that. I don't know if you've ever read any Duke's Thinking in Bets, but um, just kind of how you place your resources. We often talk about, I mean, first of all, fantastic book. Anybody that's out there should definitely read it. I think there's a, a lot, whether it's thinking about building a business um, or whether it's working in the product space, that is super, super relevant. Um, the acronym that I always come back to uh, and we talk about Ferbit in the Kate team about is Botex. So the concept of back of the envelope calculations and it's this kind of idea that really where debates start and finish is all about quantifying, guesstimating, really. If we're going to work on something, like can we put loosely with a lot of this stuff? Because it's sometimes it's more, I say sometimes, sometimes it's more art than science. But what is going to be the actual ROI? What's going to be the benefit that we're going to be actually getting back from that initiative? What's going to be the amount of resource it's going to take? How long is it going to take? And the document itself looks a little bit more like a design doc, if you've ever looked at them or used them. But it just kind of frames the culture, or I've found, and maybe this is kind of where, I guess, some of the kind of culture I've seen and I, I kind of work on and probably the kind of culture that you've seen, which is incredibly successful, right? Kind of bringing those kind of things together because it, it's building a culture of accountability to individuals to go and think about, well, there's some, there's some resource, there's some financial capital, human capital right? How can you get as much value from that as possible? And doing the, doing the research, come and basically debate the point that this is the direction we should take above and beyond everything else that everybody else is shouting, saying that we should be going doing this, should we go and doing that? And it's just trying to get the culture to one where people are thinking a bit more strategically and trying to get numbers to justify the various different projects, because there's a million things that you can do when you're in early stage or kind of a fast growth startup, especially like you guys. So the Botex um, and actually trying to encourage the right type of culture I've found has been super useful. But to kind of go back to the, um, just kind of the point on eucalyptus, because we never quite just finishing that part off. You met, is it Tim and Ch Charlie? Yeah, that's right. Tim and Charlie. So you met Tim and, uh, at Koala. How long were you actually in Koala for before you guys um, headed off and started with Eucalyptus? Uh, for two years, we were there. Okay. So we all started about the same time. Right. Okay. And how big was, how big was Koala when you started? How big was it finished when you, you guys went off? Yeah. So when we started, it was about 24, 25 people. So we were like pretty early on. Uh, and when we were leaving, they were, I think, pushing 120. Nice. Okay. So, I mean, and, and, and obviously two offices. Jeez, man. Okay. So, yeah, significant. I mean, man, Japan. <laughs> that's, that's, um, do you, do you actually set up an office in Japan? Yeah. We work. Uh, it started as a WeWork. I think they have a dedicated office now. I'm assuming in Tokyo. Yeah. But also, what we've done is that uh, about 10% of our staff in Australia was Japanese in preparation for it. And it actually helped massively. 
In fact, if you ever try to set up something in Japan, the banking, the online banking system there is atrocious. Oh, mate, I've, I trust me, I'm, I'm very aware the, the infrastructure is uh, aged. It's fair to say, and, and it's well known, incredibly difficult place to do business. But I've heard many people, and I, I think it's, it's a great opportunity for fintechs. But the entry into the market and being able to get you know, infrastructure players to allow you to go build there is still difficult. Yeah, I mean, the main banks effectively dominate their little corner of the world. But I actually had one of my staff members who was Japanese sit with me and I learned every single button in online banking and what it does because they didn't have the English version. So <laughs> I was going to say that, that, so I've only been to Japan once and this is literally just before um, the pandemic. And oh, it was, it's a fascinating place. Tokyo is just incredible. Um, I actually went to, skiing over in Hakuba, which if you ski or if you're interested, highly, highly recommend. Um, but it is interesting in terms of in comparison to other countries in Asia and how westernized or not westernized. And I think the beauty of Japan is like it is a completely different culture. And yeah, you know, it is fiercely holding on to all of its tradition. I absolutely love that because it feels like just authentic. And not like um, you know everywhere else, frankly, that you go in the world and you see a Pret-a-Manger, a McDonald's, a Starbucks, uh, and H and M. Yeah, absolutely. They they really immaculate, right? And they really take pride in what they do, and it's like shows. And I can definitely respect that. Nice. Well, anyway, not to digress too much, but you met Tim and Charlie there. You then went off, and then how? Just what was the final trigger? You guys leaving Koala and going, you know what, fuck it, this is it, we're going to press the button, guys, we're going off, we're going to start on this venture. And was it a case of uh, a running start, things were already kind of there? Or was it a case of you all just kind of had to quit because you're all working nonstop and actually it's then kind of taking some time out and then starting it? Uh, no, it was definitely <laughs> from one, one foot to the next one. In fact, I got married, I guess, around that time. And on my honeymoon, I was setting up eucalyptuses companies to, to start, start the thing. So there definitely wasn't any breaks in between. But I think the, the final trigger for us was is like we were building these incredible teams in Koala, right? Kind of world best in terms of digital marketing. But when we were trying to hire people into the business, people would say, well, why would I sell mattress? mattresses right and then we're like well, but it's like quality is not just like a mattress sales company it's like a very sophisticated digital marketing operation and there's like a lot of complex technology that goes into the operational space of it so um, for us we thought that it was a shame that we were doing all these things but it's so isolated in terms of the vertical that it's in so we decided to go on and, and start our own thing with the skill sets that we had so obviously Tim in digital marketing, Charlie in creative, Benny in kind of business dev, and I and obviously all the operational aspects. And we kind of from those core skills, we have absolutely incredible teams here. And we've met like so many talented individuals who are young and and we gave them the opportunity to build something cool. And I'm constantly amazed at Eucalyptus, what, what those people can do. And yeah, it's definitely been a, a cool three years. And then just because, again, kind of drilling into that 
so you guys had already, um, which is normally the case, right? You, know, you, you meet your co-founders from work, you start working on a plan together and you guys, I mean, you're working on it on your honeymoon. Um, so you clearly went full in to the startup land. And I guess the th- thing from an outsider, you know, that I found intriguing in terms of what you guys are building is that it's a portfolio more than anything else. It's, it's multiple products, right? Under this kind of layer. Yeah, we should probably start with what eucalyptus actually is. What is eucalyptus, man? Is it, is it a plant? Is it a tree? Who knows? No, uh, it's um, the idea, the original idea was definitely to take like the expertise that we had and allow other startups to link in into uh, our kind of core. And then we would accelerate the growth in those startups that probably had a good product, but didn't really know how to do, set up the operation, the financial things or the, uh, the digital marketing part. But in order for us to do that, the first thing that we need to do is like prove that we actually can do the thing, right? So we decided to start our own brand first before we started partnering with other with other founders. Yeah, have you come across, have you come across Founders Factory out of interest back in, over in Europe in the UK? No, we we uh, I'm not sure. No, no, no. Oh, uh, sorry, sorry. The the model itself. I mean, it, it's just it's really interesting because Founders Factory. I think it's. Um, Brent Holman. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the idea is there is like startup studio in a way. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, the funny funny part is that it was the original idea, but it completely shifted when we launched Pilot, our ment telehealth offering, and then COVID hit almost the same month that we've done it. So it was like absolutely the most luckiest of timings because all of a sudden telehealth went from like a fringe thing or is it thing for real to like, oh, my God. This is the thing, right? And we were in perfectly positioned. We had the first brand in the market. We already set up the whole operational teams to be able to support multiple businesses. So we said, well, you know what? We are a telehealth company now, and we have a number of brands in the space. So Pilot for men's health, Kin Fertility for female uh, contraception and fertility space. Then software for dermatology. Juniper actually launched last week for menopause. And we also have a sexual health brand called Normal. And what we've done is we've partnered with outstanding individuals in those fields to come and work with us to build up those brands. So we have a number of kind of founders and GMs for those brands that kind of run their own respective business. And we here support them with whatever the skill sets and the teams that we have. And it actually works beautifully because some of the businesses they don't necessarily justify 30 people development team working on it full time. But at certain points in time, they definitely need that resource. And we can very easily shift and provide it across our brand portfolio now. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, because I think the ability for founders to come along and just plug into that engineering talent and depth that you guys have got all that amazing knowledge that you've built up from those years over at uh, Interactive Accounting, Canva, Koala, that's invaluable. Uh, and then especially just kind of thinking about where Eucalyptus is now. I mean, the, the time, the shift in terms of everything having to move online. Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden, all forms of health is having to be transformed overnight, right? And again, it's just quite interesting because the brands that you're building, you know, it's an area in the market where, frankly, we haven't seen 
relatable brands, I'd say, um, that kind of normalize a lot of these things. I mean, you, you mentioned about kind of like men's health. For a lot of the time, it, it's the kind of stuff that you'd never talk to your mates about or your friends about in terms of what's going on. Same with women's, right? And um, I think it's only a good thing, the fact that you build in brands around these things, normalizing it, having a conversation, making it super accessible for consumers to then actually participate you know, in a, on terms that they like, which yeah, privately, digitally. Yeah, I, I can see why it's been so successful. So congrats. Thanks. Uh, and I should also mention that it's not only <laughs> interactive account, uh, accounting Canva Koala. We have people from McKinsey. We have people from Google, Atlassian, Optiva. Like, I think one of the greatest successes for us was that the fact that we could attract a super talented team and they really made it possible. Right, like I can't do it without my founders, and we have definitely couldn't have done it without our team. Nice. Well, my friend, thank you for your time. Uh, I just realized, in terms of where we're at, this has been an amazing conversation. I've learned a lot. For anybody that's listening out there, what's the best way for them to get in touch if they've got any questions about anything we've talked about today? So my LinkedIn. I'm not sure how many, how many requests I'll get, but uh, obviously Alexei Mitko on LinkedIn. Obviously, you can also go to eucalyptus.vc where you'll see kind of us and our brands and there are plenty of job openings as well. So do click a button there. Amazing. Alexei, thank you so much for taking the time out today. Um, and thank you to everybody who's been listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to subscribe so that we can join you again. And if you appreciate the show, please jump over to iTunes and give us some stars. Uh, for more tips and notes from the show, check us out at hellocape.com. Uh, talk to you next time. Cheers. Bye.